If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen, remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, a podcast against shame. I hope you're well. And I hope you're in the mood for a very soothing chat between two women who love each other very much, who kind of properly met on this podcast last year. And then we did the thing where we said that we were going to become friends because we really just got on ridiculously well. And I'm so happy that it's documented and she has gone on to since become one of my favourite people and one of my close, close friends And she's back this time to talk about a new project that she's got out that I think is important to talk about because it's relevant to a lot of the subjects we discuss on this show. And also she is a woman who has written, directed, produced and starred in her own show. And it is a show that is an ode to women. It is an ode to women's bodies. It is an ode to women's sexuality. It is an ode to our life choices and how they don't have to define us, but the ways in which sometimes they can for a while until we decide to make a big change. Her show is called Slip and it's out now on Roku and it's produced by Dakota Johnson and it's so beautifully shot, so beautifully directed and she's such a fucking star. And I can't even explain how difficult it is to do all of those things all at the same time in your own TV show where you direct every single episode yourself while starring in it and writing everything. It is an outrageous feat and one I wanted to talk about honestly uh, for any other young creators out there who have been told that they can't do it all. She literally fucking did. She's gone and done it all And it's a stunning piece of work that's already receiving such an amazing reaction. And we go into the process of what it's like and what it's like to occupy those space as a woman in a male-dominated industry, what we've learned from the male-dominated industry, what we want to do different, how, how we manage to do those things differently while also maintaining our mental health. We talk about women's sexuality and the way it's been portrayed and the things that we don't know and and why it takes us so long to figure those things out, why there's so much shame around sexuality. And we talk about the sliding doors of our lives, right? The different ways things could have gone and how easy it is to be haunted by that. And we kind of both sort of haunt each other about it throughout this episode. Uh, But It's a very empowering chat and she's such a thoughtful and interesting woman with such a soothing voice. And even if you're someone who's not particularly interested in a career in film, it doesn't really matter. This episode is kind of transferable to anyone who wants to occupy a space that they were always told their whole life wasn't for them. 
And I think that's really cool. I think it's really inspiring. I think she's really cool and inspiring. Uh, follow all of her work. Find her on social media. Her name's Zoe Lister-Jones. Uh, listen to her previous podcast with me. It was so fascinating about her upbringing and her mental health. And go and watch Slip, which is on Roku now. But first, enjoy the excellent and dulcet tones of Zoe Lister-Jones. Zoe Lister fucking Jones. Welcome back to I Way. Hello. Thank you. Hi. It's so good to be back. It's so good to see you. Uh, Jesus Christ on a bicycle, you've had a hell of a week. Um, <laughs> your your show has come out, Slip, and it is something that you have written, you have directed, and you have also starred in, hmm. which is a wild feat, a feat that I'm not sure a woman has yet been able to do, especially not on this scale. And so a lot of I imagine like a, a large sense of achievement but also like a huge amount of pressure that maybe you weren't aware of until just now <laughs> yeah thank you thank you so much Jamila uh, no but how are you feeling there's a lot going on it's finally coming out into the world um it, it's always such a wild experience to like birth a, an art baby you know it's terrifying and thrilling and um this one in particular is so deeply personal that mm-hmm. and and emotionally exposing, but also um physically exposing. We were just talking about <laughs> what you've called my milky bum. Yeah. Like uh, excellent, like excellent <laughs> bum shots in this uh, uh we'll get I do want to actually get into the nudity conversation because mm. I'm fascinated, but but we'll stay off the bum for a second. Okay. Yeah. Gotta stay. OTB. Yeah. <laughs> First act were OTB, but second act climax, we're going straight yeah, yeah, mil- yeah. milky bottoms. Um I yeah, I'm excited. I'm so excited to be sharing it with the world. I mean, I think that's the the short answer is um, you know, these things live in us as artists for so long, and then the development process and the production process and the post-production process. And so to be here now, um, culminating all of those difficult and challenging and expansive processes into this moment is moving. I would say it's it's moving and exciting and terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really fair. I uh I would love for you to explain what Slip is about. Slip is about a woman who is feeling restless inside her marriage mm-hmm. and uh one night ends up cheating on her husband and wakes up the next morning to uh, realize that she's now married to the man that she cheated on her husband with. And over the course of the season, she learns that through orgasm, she's being transported into a multiverse and is basically fucking her way into all of her parallel lives and relationships. How the fuck did you come up with this idea? <laughs> it's such an amazing concept, the, oh. the ending of the the pilot is just uh, extraordinary. Like I, uh, how, how, what's wrong with you? Why did you come up with this? How did this um, happen? 
Well, it's based on a true story. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my pussy is a portal and, yeah. um, a wormhole. I think you, my, you pus- my it pussy is a wormhole. Yeah. Quite disturbing. <laughs> um, I, well, I had conceived of the show pre pandemic. My ex and I were in and out of an open marriage. And I think part in part, the birth of the show was me navigating the idea of multiple partners and how we how we reconcile fantasy when we're in relationship and what we do with that and um wait expand on that expand on that as in like the way that we imagine an alternative like i i don't know if i'm on the right um track but by god am i going to try uh <laughs> Uh, that like I call it the gig complex right the grass is mm. greener complex mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and we we always fantasize about how much better an alternative situation could be yes so it's is, exactly is it that? that it's exactly the gig complex it's like and I think I think regardless of whether you're in a relationship or not we're always gigging you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like I think especially in our culture today it's so it's nearly impossible to remain grateful in the present moment. You know, like there's, it's always like, what's next? How do I elevate? How do I level up? Um, is there something better? Is there a way to achieve ultimate happiness in a way that I'm not achieving it now, which I think is sort of this trap that then never allows us to actually be happy. <laughs> um, but yeah. Well, it's also, think- but also we, we are, uh, I guess like increasingly encouraged with every generation and, and I, 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 and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing because God knows it's gotten me out of some really toxic relationships in the past, but we are more encouraged now than ever to look at always the outside as the problem before ourselves. Mm. And to think it's not that I have to do work on me. It's only that the situation or the job or the lover has to go. And not to say that two things can't be true at the same time. Yeah. But I think that the reason that some some of my friends or myself even have ended up in like repeated patterns with a certain type of person is because we've changed the situation, but not whatever it was inside of us that contributed to us ending up in that situation that's not victim blaming at all I just mean it's a little bit of like protective accountability I love that yes uh my first in- instinct was to say the problem is never me Th- that's just personally um <laughs> <laughs> you know what I am your friend and I agree wholeheartedly as your diehard protector I don't think it could ever possibly be you, but Thank I don't you want so to enable this. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jamila. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that um, those patterns are so difficult to um, take accountability for and mm-hmm. and to really see what energy you're um, putting out into the world to potentially attract back something that isn't that isn't allowing you to grow or elevate. Yeah. And I feel like the opening kind of relationship of the show, the one that you're talking about, the one with the husband, I don't want to give too much away, but like essentially the couple has like sort of, you're still close and you still like each other, but the sex is gone. The spontaneity has gone. The passion's kind of uh, fizzled somewhat. Mm. And I think that a lot of people can probably relate to that in any kind of long-term scenario. And and unfortunately, it just does require significant effort in order to keep that spark alive. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And, and sometimes you've just grown outgrown each other. And sometimes it's important to never like treat this as anything other than a case by case basis. But I do think that the pandemic probably really exposed a lot of people, you know, as to what their relationship is really like, the situation they're in and how the fuck did they get there? And a lot of people broke up, but some people found like a renewed sense of love for one another um, via yeah. realizing, okay, we need to we need to work a little bit harder because this can't be the area of my life in which just because I feel safe, I then don't do anything to cultivate it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it was important for me while it is a comedy and I'm like poking fun at uh, the malaise of this relationship in the first episode, I also wanted it to be a relationship that totally worked. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? That it wasn't so black and white, that it was a a loving and um, sort it's of a partnership. sweet. It's a partnership, yeah, that 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 wasn't so clear uh, needed escaping and, and that it wasn't so clear that it was anyone's fault, right? It's like what you were saying that, that um, it's just maybe two people who are both feeling restless and don't know what to do to shift that both individually and together. And I think the pandemic did put those questions into such hyper-focus. Um, and I think they put like, I think the pandemic put nostalgia into such hyper-focus for me, especially. And that was when I wrote all seven episodes of this series in the pandemic, um, in quarantine, sort of early in quarantine. And it was that moment that I think then, you know, launched a thousand (laughs) breakups, (laughs) but, um, but that moment launched, of launched a thousand divorce careers, uh, <laughs> divorce lawyers careers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and also, and also, like you said, alternatively made people really commit, you know, it, I think it, it did one thing or the other in, in quarantine, but this idea of like the what ifs that were plaguing us, mm-hmm. that suddenly we were forced to really sit with and go, wait, there were all these paths that I didn't take in my life. And what would my life look like now mm-hmm. if I had taken them? And those questions have always fascinated me. And I wanted to create a narrative where I could explore those what ifs and and explore like the moments where you have some sort of cosmic connection with someone that is fleeting and that you don't pursue. And what would happen if you got to flash forward and see what the pursuit of that person would look like, which is essentially what happens um, in the show. Yeah, I think I've spoken about this before on the podcast. Um, but, you know, my my boyfriend and I, you know, like used to speak about this, especially at the beginning of our relationship, because neither of us wanted to be in a relationship when we first met each other. We just couldn't stay away from one another. Mm. Ick. Sorry. <laughs> um, but um, but we also had like curiosities about other people. And it was about like, he, he talk, told me that like his way of handling that and the temptation and the fact that we're in an industry where we are surrounded by uh, a lot of very attractive people who seem to be more frequently in a sexy mood than any other industry I've ever worked in <laughs> um, is is to like make sure to get to the end of the rainbow of the fantasy, right? Mm. So it's like you see them, you just see them and you project onto that person. Maybe you've had like a minor witty exchange and you're like, 
I think they're hilarious. Yep. I actually like they dress like they kind of have the same taste in me. And like, I bet they love Radiohead. <laughs> I bet like, I bet uh, that they like their friends are really cool. And you know, that they'd re- probably really get on with, like we project so much um, unthinkingly and like with such like optimism and hope, like onto strangers. And, and he tries to like, he, he would like push past that initial fantasy and then be like, but the chances are, their friends probably aren't going to have that much in common with me and the sex will eventually fizzle out and become a little bit less dirty within time and then over. Totally. and then there'll be all kinds of problems and I might not like their family and they might not like mine and then he just kind of gets to the very end of the thing just being like everything inevitably takes an immense amount of work and 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 it's almost impossible to maintain that early electricity and nobody is as they seem including ourselves we are not the person that we are in the beginning of a relationship you know, we try to no. reinvent ourselves every time. And I think that was a, the reinvention of you kind of throughout the show is something that's really cool. It's it like, oh, I, I would love to be able to have a, a, a wormhole pussy just to like, <laughs> it's, a, it feels like this show is like an homage to quantum leap. It's yeah. an homage to sliding doors yeah. um, that I, uh, that has haunted me for the rest of my life. Anyone (laughs) in this generation who hasn't seen that film, it's, yeah, it's an early Gwyneth movie in which we get to see two versions of her life based on whether or not she made this train, right? This train journey was going to determine the outcome of her life. And so they show the version of if she didn't catch the train and if she did catch the train and we get to watch both lifestyles lived uh, in a parallel. And it has the, the sliding doors element of that has haunted our entire generation about mm-hmm. like every time I miss a lift, like an elevator yeah. Yeah. or I miss a bus or and like any small minute, like any minor moment happens. Uh, and I'm like, that could have been, everything could have been completely different. I would have, what if I'd completely won the different. Nobel prize? Yeah. Like what if I, yeah. <laughs> it's never something shit oh, that would have happened. <laughs> it's always like something absolutely amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And that is, I feel like that did happen in, in quarantine, especially like, those moments because we were like you know you were we were so um trapped with ourselves and or with our partners or with whoever you know we were living with at the time that like I was zooming people like from elementary school you know just being like and whatever happened to Mrs. Singer (laughs) (laughs) uh you know like that there was this idea of like our pasts as being suddenly much more open for deconstruction and discovery, I think, in some ways, yeah. uh, for better or for worse. And I think um, looking at those moments of like the missed bus or or the missed connection or whatever those things were as these markers of maybe worlds not lived or happiness not achieved. Or, um, but that movie in particular really did. I'm now, I'm going to like... Um, Gwyneth trial like what's yeah <laughs> what sliding door led Gwyneth to ski trial to, um, Gwyne- to Gwynison which to is Gwynison. one of the great headlines of our time um I, uh but it is it I, I wonder if making this show made you more contemplative uh even about about alternative like have you thought about what your alternative lives could or would have been well I mean I have. I definitely have. I think the show, I think writing the show was a way for me to process those fantasies um, about what 
what other lives I had been thinking about Mm -hmm. um, or wondering about or questioning. And I think post uh, divorce, I did then sort of get to explore some of those Mm -hmm. fantasies um, and and, experience the reality, experience the reality of that fantasy. Yeah. Which I think is so, um, like you said, enlightening and, um, but you have the archetypes in there, don't you? You have like the glamorous rock star figure that you get to date and the reality of what that exactly yeah. is going to be. The fact that your character has, uh, has always been queer, but has never felt brave enough to already perhaps mm. to explore that and then gets mm. to explore that within this show. Like there's so many different types of things that I think so many people can relate to. And we're coming to an age at which I think a lot of those thoughts are starting to come up for so many people of like, shit, should I have just seized the moment? And what would that be like? And I think that, I think that's also like a very powerful messaging about just about the need for exploration. And we don't, we don't see a lot of women's exploration in, in art Mm. and nowhere, nowhere near enough. And when we do, it's treated as like, so, um, anarchist and shocking and it can be like belittled and demeaned and I feel like you have you've handled it in a very artful way that almost like the surreal element takes away any possibility for anyone to look at it as seedy which is how we tend to treat women's sexuality um this feels like a it feels like a strong like not and I think also like the way it's shot and how how beautiful it is like you've done a fucking amazing job you and the Mm. cinematographer here but um but but can you talk to me about the 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 goal to portray women's sexuality in a certain way? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to create a show that was unapologetically exploring women's sexual pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, I was raised by a, a real um, second wave feminist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think I was raised to look at the media through a feminist lens. Um, and my mom was constantly, whatever we would watch, she was sort of constantly, um, dissecting Mm -hmm. and, and looking at the ways, even like billboards, we'd like, she was really obsessed with like posters for, um, films in which, um, or even albums, like in which women's heads were cut off. It was just a body. Like we were just, if we were an object of sexual desire, we were just a body. Um, and the idea of a woman, um, uh, protagonist who could be sexual and sexualized and, um, and also not just a body, um, was really important to me and to push the boundaries of what the, um, exploration of that pleasure could look like on screen. I wanted the the sex scenes because I wanted the sex scenes to be a the centerpiece of every episode because that is her <laughs> means of transportation. Mm-hmm. Um but there also, I was slumming it in Ubers. <laughs> <laughs> but also I wanted to like live in the sex scenes for longer than well we generally do. Yeah, cuz normally it's just like um a heteronormative man just goes and then woman comes very fast and then it's over uh but this was like these were sustained orgasms like it was very uh explicit and and realistic uh which like almost like at first made me feel shy because i haven't Mm. seen 
that like you, you just don't get to see that ever but I was so appreciative of the fact that that's there that's out there and it it shows the female orgasm is something that's so beautiful and like something that more people like I hope it's not only uh women who will watch this show like I hope all genders watch yeah, this show and too. and 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 see the beauty of that and see the intimacy and 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 I really applaud you for putting yourself out there in such a like it's, a, it's such a cool way. I don't want to say I hate the word brave. I think it's become used <laughs> so annoyingly, but like, but, but you know, you're directing yourself, right? You are, you are having to run back and forth between a fucking like monitor and then go and have that explicit orgasm or do that sex scene or show cunnilingus like in a, mm. in a, in a more explicit way than we normally get to see in film. Um, and you, there's nudity in, in the show. And I love the fact that you're at the helm of that nudity. Mm that you are choosing exactly what part of your body will be shown, how it will be shown. And it's shown in very sexual and both mundane ways, mm. which is also like very important. Um, but, but was that, was that tricky for you emotionally? <laughs> I mean, yes. I, I think that, um, it might not be in which case fabulous. I was just curious because like, it's, it's like a, it's, it's a weird thing of like, do I like, I, th- I think a lot of young people, especially within feminism are like, is showing the body feminist is not showing the body feminist. And I don't, I think it's really just like up to the person. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I mean, it, it sort of, it all goes back to my mom. Um, but like, who is great. Uh, who I just great. had dinner with a week ago. <laughs> <I'd love. laughs> um, but like, I remember Madonna being such a figure of contention in my childhood in, mm-hmm. in between my mom and I. Um, and it's sort of, she sort of was an early example of the conflict between second and third wave feminists in terms of sex positivity, you know, um, like what's the line where, where a woman being hypersexual is exploitative, um, Mm -hmm. and, and when is it expansive? And obviously we've come a long way from the eighties and those discussions. And I'm grateful for, um, for where we are now. But I, I think for me, there was something scary about, um, saying, well, I, I want to make something that is hypersexual, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that where I put my own body on the line and make my body both subject and object in some ways, you know, and, and what does that feel like for me? as a creator and as, um, an actor, but it was ultimately so empowering for lack of a better word, uh, to be in complete control Mm -hmm. of, of the portrayal of my sexuality on screen and, um, to know exactly how each of those sex scenes would be shot. And that was a, a, like, that was most of the discussion between me and my cinematographer, Daniel Grant, um, because each sex scene I wanted to be a set piece and to be, um, individuated from the previous one cinematically in terms of the visual language. And, um, and I also wanted them to feel really sexy, you know, like I, I want, mm-hmm. I want the show to turn people on. I felt that that was what I was craving. You know, I usually make the things that I <laughs> want to watch and, um, and I wanted to watch things that were um, erotic, that were also complex and about the nature of relationships. 
I don't know if I'm allowed to say this in the podcast and if not, we'll just cut it out. But um, but one of my friends is in this playing one of your lovers and during one of the sex scenes in which he's having to go down on you, <laughs> you are having to direct him whilst like being engaged in the sex scene and you gave him the note, be more generous. <laughs> which I loved so much because again, that's just nothing you ever hear of. And so much of the focus is on your character's pleasure and your character's new experience. Um, and it's so revolutionary, but he, he told me that afterwards. He was, like, was being like, sort of like, she was, she was just like having to direct me, um, guiding me to be more generous, which has made me like really like reconsider like my own sex life. <laughs> It was it's great. It was amazing. Uh, Amrachana Patel plays uh, one of my partners and he's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and literally, I've never had more people tell me how hot, like just from the trailer. People are like, so mm-hmm. who is that? Uh, he's the hottest person I've ever I seen. I know, it's so ridiculous. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Making my cat happy is my number one priority, and Fresh Step Outstretch litter helps me do just that. Meet Mr. Mittens. Mitty, for short. Ah! Mitty is happiest when his litter box is clean and fresh, and Fresh Step Outstretch is amazing at absorbing waste and odor. We sure have found our common ground, haven't we? Happy cat, happy life. Find Fresh Step Outstretch at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliates. directing from within scenes in general is one of my favorite things to do because it is so immediate and the um but also you're able to execute the exact thing that you want which a director and an actor very rarely get the um the fulfillment of yeah and there's always this one like 
or multiple levels of distance between director and actor that directors at a monitor that is usually not on the set. They have to run in and give a note. And this way I'm like in this tornado of energy, um, both as actor and director that I get to navigate and, um, and play with. And so that's always thrilling, but then to do it <laughs> naked in a sex scene. <laughs> Um, over and over again mm-hmm. was a, a totally new skill set and one that was um, wild. It was terrifying. I mean, it was terrifying. It was terrifying to so many days out of, we shot the the whole series over 36 days and many of those days I had to be oh naked. Oh my, wait, what? <laughs> you shot that entire series in 36 days? Yeah. Okay, let's get into the directing of it all. Like, let's, okay. let's, uh, uh, we've, I'd, I can't believe what you have done. Mm-hmm. It is such a wild feat of work. And in no way do I want to be off-putting to any young, especially women filmmakers out there. But but can you explain to me what the fuck one's mind feels like <laughs> when you are spinning that many plates at the same time? Because <laughs> I directed like one, one and a half videos for James, music video for James, which are four minutes long. And I wanted to like fucking throw myself off my balcony (laughs) (laughs) like the edit alone almost took me out um what is it what is it like um well I think I wanted to direct every episode which is uh not conventional in television you usually Mm -hmm. have multiple directors over the course of a season but I wanted to do that because of what we've been talking about I, I wanted to be um really at the helm of of how this story was being told from mm-hmm. soup to nuts <laughs> um I, because i felt it was too delicate in some ways to to do in any other way um also production wise like we we didn't have a, a lot of money to make it and um so it was also um a pragmatic choice for me to to direct every episode um it's a it's a enormous amount of, of work, but one that I do think, and I don't think this is, this is discouraging. I think it is in- encouraging to women filmmakers, um, that you can do it all, baby. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. no, but like that, that directing and writing and acting and any other combination of those three things, if you're not doing all three of them is a really amazing holistic conversation to mm-hmm. be at the center of like all of those hats are in dialogue in like a very organic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I write, I am, uh, writing also as an actor, like for myself, I'm, I'm writing dialogue as an actor. I'm writing action, uh, lines as a director. I'm picturing every minutia of every beat. Um, so that when I get to shot listing, it's all already in my head, you know, whereas if I was directing someone else's script, it would be a, there'd be one more step that I'd have to, to it's do. It's also a rarity that a woman can execute anything with no compromise. Yeah. And I think that's really, really cool. <laughs> it's really cool. I'm so grateful and I'm really grateful to Roku um, because that is n- never the case. Uh, in and, any endeavor. In any endeavor. And yeah. um I handed Roku all seven scripts uh 
and they gave me a green light to shoot them without one note. And so I got to make the exact show that I wanted to. And as you said, that is, um, such a rarity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and from start to finish in post two, they just, they gave me so much artistic freedom. Um, and for that, I'm just so grateful. It was really the most fulfilling artistic experience of my life. Over the course of your career, because you've been doing this a while now, I imagine you've seen what it is that you've not enjoyed people do on a set. Mm. And I, I always like learning what, uh, <laughs> and you're not a new filmmaker by any means, but like doing this much independently is, is, is this is your first time taking all of these things on. Is that in your mind? It was very much so in my mind when I was directing James. It was like, what's everything I hate about a set? <laughs> And I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Well, as actors, you know, it's, I think we learn a lot, especially working on um, television, because Mm -hmm. on television, we get a lot of directors coming in and out. And so you really, it's like boot camp to see like what works and what doesn't in the way that a director communicates direction to an actor. Mm -hmm. So I definitely learned a lot about that as an actor, especially in television. Um, I feel like, directors who trust their actors are always going to get better performances. Directors who come in nervous and want to give a direction before they've even heard you rehearse the scene or want to sort of try and um, manage or micromanage what the performance is going to look like without giving it room to breathe over a couple of takes. Like I think immediately um, elicits mistrust and that's very hard to to rebuild, uh, I think, between director and actor. It's such a delicate relationship. So that's something that I am always really aware of. Um, but also on a set, like in any workspace, energy is so contagious and energy is learned from the top down. And I'm always just so excited to like work in community. Like it's so cool to um, hire smart, interesting, cool people, and then mm-hmm. let their visions also soar. Like that it's all obviously in service of one vision, but there's so many visions at play. And it's, yeah, such a cool, when it's done well, it's like such a cool social experiment. Um, yeah. So that's, I, I like to, as best I can, foster an environment where that can be happening, where everyone feels like it's empowered. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of people who spoke, who spoke out about your set afterwards. Um, No, but in a lovely (laughs) way, rarely in a lovely way. Like it was, it was, it was so cool to see so many people talk about the fact that it was one of the friendliest, one of the most fun, one of the most creative sets that they'd worked on. Who needs an alarm in the morning? When McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles. And a breakfast cutoff. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Start clean with Clorox. Because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Oh yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. 
I sometimes feel like loath to talk to women about being a woman director, but at the same mm. time, I think it is vital to not shut that conversation down entirely because we're all kind of entering these more kind of uh, these positions of more power. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to talk about it. But in those moments in which, especially when you're on a small budget and you only have 36 days and you have to get every one of those shots because you can't afford to go over and sometimes things do go wrong or sometimes you feel impatient, but you also have this, from what I know of you, like this desire to not allow that to bleed out onto not just your actors, but the people who are working really fucking hard on your set. Mm. What do you do with that? How do you, is that okay for me to ask? It's a personal question, but. Like with the anxiety, like how with do the I anxiety not? or the frustration and, mm. and, and, and I, I would ask a man this just as much as a woman, because I think our culture of filmmaking has changed apart from mm-hmm. some total pricks who still somehow have jobs, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, sexualizing teenagers on camera. Um, anyway, mm. uh, but I, uh, yeah, I, I would love to, I would love to know what, what your kind of process of, of how you still are able to deliver the information as calmly and kindly as possible when you're still a human being who's still under mm. a lot of pressure and stressed. Um, Is it meds? For it's me, meds. it's meds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pills. Um, I think it just requires a, a huge amount of preparation so that um, I try not to be a person who's preparing for the worst in my life, but in work, I... <laughs> I think you do have to prepare for the mm-hmm. worst so that anything that comes your way, you, you sort have of a have a plan B mm-hmm. because in making films and television, everything is going to go wrong. There's just no other way around mm-hmm. it. Um, and I think it's also, I'm pretty vigilant in my interviewing process around the people just getting a read on people's energy because as I said, it's so contagious that, um, and, and you are working in such close quarters and it's so intimate and the stakes are so high and there's money on the line. And, um, and if you don't have people around you who also aren't going to lose their cool and also aren't going to freak the fuck out when something goes wrong, the whole like Jenga can crumble, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but part of being a director is in addition to um all of the artistic uh responsibilities is administrative but also like being i think caring for people's feelings and mm-hmm. egos and it's a pretty it, it's an ecosystem that is uh precarious you mm-hmm. know and and so i think to be uh the best director I can be. I'm also always trying to navigate, um, yeah, how people are feeling without it being draining, you know, which is also in my life. But but that's what I'm getting at, right? Is that that balance, like I get a lot of people who ask me about how I am a leader in my own company or I'm a, you know, Mm. leader in like not many capacities, let's be honest. I, I like to normally sure be a follower. Are. I like to be a follower. <laughs> I like less responsibility. Um, no. But but they ask me how I, you know, how I walk that line because I also think that we need to be careful as women to not overburden ourselves like with everyone else's like problems, needs. Like it's very difficult to execute an artistic vision under pressure whilst t- like treading on eggshells. 
So I guess I'm curious just about the process. Yeah. If, if there is one, uh, because I mean, you are one of the more saintly people that I know. Oh, uh, but also I was just remembering when we were talking earlier, I was like, God, I really kind of like properly met you for the first, like properly met you for the first time on this podcast. Oh, and, I and, now we've yeah. be- and we said we'd become friends and we did. And that's really cute. Anyway. And uh, uh, thank I'll you, stop. Ai Wei, for, yeah, um, thank for you, bringing, <laughs> for but how bringing do us together. You, how do you like find that line of being like authoritative, which you need to be in order to lead? Mm. And I know this sounds like such a simplistic question, but it's almost been so hypersimplified that then we actually don't give people the tools yeah, to really consider how to do that because we are humans. We do have our own like issues. We have also had sleepless nights or mm. we're going through personal fucking trauma on the side mm. of the set. What, like, where do you draw that line between being authoritative versus authoritarian? <laughs> I like to run a fascistic set, you know. Good, uh, good, good, I, good. I like it to feel like a dictatorship. <laughs> um, I think it's a great question. I think, you know, without um, making it too gendered, I do think it's an important conversation to have because there is a double standard uh, in which I think women who are not hyper focused on the feelings of the people around them can be judged. Uh, more, um, more brutally. Like I just went brutally, through this. Yeah. I worked with a with a woman who was directing, and um, she didn't. You know, she she wasn't careful about everyone's feelings. She was just like, go 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 go, because we had a lot to do. We had a lot to execute. But she was definitely not as or more problematic than any men mm. I've ever worked with. But she just had no frills. And I think there's like this kind of j- extra jarring feeling of like, gosh, she's a bit fucking blunt in a way yeah. that we would expect naturally from a man. And maybe we shouldn't expect that from a man. But she was torn to fucking pieces yeah, uh, for yeah. D- during and afterwards uh, in a way that I felt was like slightly like when I when I stepped back and looked at it I was like that was a little bit disproportionate because I've worked with with true like at, like she wasn't doing something that was like targeting anyone or anything like that she just had no frills or bows yeah you know in a way that was definitely like oh fucking hell it's abrupt but yeah uh, also getting the job done um and she didn't have time so I that's that's why I I kind of ask it's like how the fuck do you find that balance between being someone who then I don't know. Not, I don't mean a pushover, but I just mean oh, like overburdened, like a donkey carrying everyone's, you know, baggage. I, yeah. I think I, I'm learning how to do that less in my life, but interestingly in my work, um, there's, I think it just, it starts really at the beginning of, mm-hmm. of pre-production. I think building those relationships with the people that you're working with from the jump in which there is trust and intimacy and mutual respect, a mutual respect. Like I think that if people feel, if, if you're, if people on the crew feel heard, respected, um, a part of the conversation, an active part of the conversation. And that's not to say that also you're like, Everyone gets to say their ideas because that would be, you know, crazy mm-hmm. if you allowed for that. But, but I think if everyone does feel that their voice really matters, which it does, that you tend to avoid a lot of those issues, um, more organically. There, there's, uh, less triage to be done when you're in the thick of it. And I, it's interesting. I was out with a couple of my crew members, um, 
sort of like a month ago and, and we, we wrapped, um, many, many months ago. So they were, we were looking back at the, uh, the time we spent together and they were like, it's so crazy. It was so amazing how you knew everyone's name on set. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, it didn't, that seems like such a low bar. Yeah. The bar is in hell. Uh, Yeah. And they were like, well, it's just very few directors know everyone's name. And, um, I just was like shocked that that was, that that was the bar that just to know a name would feel like, um, that, that rare or that, or that encouraging or that nourishing. I I totally get it because there is a sense, there are so many people on a set and, um, and there's a sense of invisibility of the labor force, I think. And there's this distinction between what, what you call above the line and below the line, like the, the cinematographer and, and the production designer and the costume designer are all above the line. Whack whack the word assistant on anything and uh, below the line. Right. Or the camera crew is below the line, you know, and all these Mm -hmm. people who are just busting their asses day in and day out who can feel invisible or a lack of importance. And, um, and so I think that is a big part of it is, is creating a sense of equity and community while still, when you do that, I think you, um, you elicit trust in your crew where they are not questioning your authority because they feel, um, safe. And then yeah. you get to have a, a really nice, um, set that doesn't require yelling. <laughs> Because that's, or, I think that's part of the problem with a lot of sets having so many different directors is that everyone's anxious because nobody knows each other. So it's just this kind of like, like I hated it with yeah. The Good Place. It was kind of exciting that I got to meet so many different people. But some of those people, like the majority of them were like nice and, and whatever, but like not everyone treated everyone very well. They treated us well because we're the actors. But of course. I have such like such intense disgust if anyone doesn't treat everyone the same um, I know. I, I just, I find it like, it's so, it's so appalling to me. Like it's just, it's an, it's a terminal ick. I have terminal ick. that person. Totally. It's terminal. <laughs> it's ending only in death. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I, uh, and, and it, there is this like insecurity in both them as to how they're being perceived and the people who don't know if they're going to like what they're doing or how they work. Um, so therefore, and, while it is yeah. an insane workload, there is um, the, the, that continuity that you had on set, I believe, carried over into filming. Yeah, for sure. I, I think also insecurity is an interesting thing to look at, like as a leader, it, because I think if you we've talked about quiet confidence, <laughs> you and I, but I think that both crews and actors, but I think across any industry, mm-hmm. if you're if you're in a position of leadership, people can smell insecurity uh, on you. But there's no way to not be insecure. There's no leader that's like, I know every answer to every question. And I think especially as women, there's so, so much pressure to be perfect and to, and to do it all right and to get every answer right. And I think I went in, I mean, on Band-Aid, which was my directorial debut, it was a film. I hired, um, a crew made up of entirely women. And I think I did that in order to A, make a, a point about inequity behind the camera, but also, to create a working environment in which I could make mistakes, um, without, um, 
with impunity in some ways, you know, where, where it could be a safer place, uh, because I had seen the pressure cooker that was a woman director with a, a predominantly male crew, uh, and the, and the sort of questioning or condescension that, that can sometimes happen. Um, but I think that that being my first foray into a position of leadership as a director also allowed for me to really, I always push myself to be a director who says, who can say, I don't know. And I think across any industry as a leader, that's such an important Mm -hmm. permission to give yourself. Because if you can say, I don't know, then someone will give you the fucking answer. Someone, by the way, and it's an it's an invitation for them to be in in the conversation in a way that is exciting, like for other people on your crew or on your team, and um, so that I would say that's also a piece of advice that I would give to all all directors, but but women especially, I think, who feel that they don't want to direct until they have every answer. Um, and that that's, this, there's this barrier to entry that's like, but I didn't go to film school or I don't know all the lenses or I don't, you know, it's like, you can still do it. Mm-hmm. There's so many ways to, to, to go about it where if you are confident enough in the stories you want to be telling and the, and the, the way you want to be telling them, then there's plenty of other people who can help you, um, fill in the blanks otherwise. Absolutely. So before I lose you, I would love to know what you most hope people get from this body of work that is a kind of an ode to to women's pleasure and mm. an ode to, I don't know, self-reflection. I guess I hope that um, that people in general would feel less alone watching it, like that a lot of these questions around um, not just relationships, but feeling uh, a sense of peace in one's life or a sense of satisfaction in one's life um, to sort of quiet the the negative voices that are plaguing all of us all of the time. That that that's something that we're all grappling with, and um, and so I guess I hope that viewers can find themselves in in the characters and, um, and their struggles. And I guess in terms of sexuality, like, I guess it, I hope it destigmatizes. I'm going to be specific, uh, in terms of women's, um, abilities. I want to (laughs) destigmatize the clitoris. No, I guess I want to destigmatize women's, um, pursuit of pleasure sexually speaking specifically but i think mm-hmm. in general also that um that there's that i think uh in media especially and in film and television um historically when a woman is actively pursuing sexual pleasure there's usually um oh an undertone that she's like and, fucked up her life and yeah she's- and there's a punishment on the other end of it um and I, th- I think it's impossible not to really um, absorb that in a cellular way. And so I hope that this can maybe undo some of some of that damage. <laughs> yeah, the message is don't stop till you get enough. And I don't think that stop that's, till you get yeah. enough. 
Just keep coming, baby. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think it's about not settling. And I think it's about exploration. And and I think that that is a message that really needs to be told. And you're so right whenever I, I think about this, like how many of those people are always, even when created by women, presented as dysfunctional. Mm. And this is a a fallible but functional human who's just like, I don't really want to be bored in my life. It's the, it's the like, it's the, it's permission to have an adventure as well that we don't really give ourselves very often because we're like, well, we're so lucky to have, to have these morsels. So we mustn't adventure for more. It's very Oliver Twist. Yeah, I think, I think it is um, giving people permission to want more and to seek more and uh, that there is more. And right now, especially in this sort of state of post-traumatic stress that we're all collectively mm-hmm. in, there is um, a huge, I think, reward in in exploring what pleasure looks and feels like. 100%. Oh, it's so cool. Well, everyone, go find Slip. It's on Roku. It's available. It's out now. Um, yeah, it's out now. and 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 it's it's a it's a a feat of so much love Mm. you know i i watched you go through that whole process via text while i was (laughs) on the other side of the world um and i'm immensely uh proud as a friend but also really uh excited about the prospect of what this means going forward not just for you but for for women in these roles so well done Thank you so much, Jamila. See you soon. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. We also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code IWAY. Lastly, over at iWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iwaypodcast at gmail.com. And now... We would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. Uh, But I started to wait until I fully believed what I was going to say. And right now it feels like the right time. I weigh my creativity and artistic mind. I weigh my love for drumming and music and the work that I put in to study drumming at university. I weigh my perseverance and my strength and surviving a six-month hospital admission for an eating disorder and rebuilding and rediscovering myself after which I'm still doing now. I weigh my empathy and love for others. I weigh my humour, silliness and laughing. I weigh my family and being an owner to my gorgeous dog, Ozzy. I weigh my memories and I weigh the adventures that are yet to come. Thank you so much for everything that you've done. You've helped me find the strength within myself to get through hospital and to fight my eating disorder. And you've helped me see and enjoy the fact that I'm a constant process of growth. Sending so much love. I hope you're well. Take care. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
My cat Rachel is the silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company.